presence of the Lord. For those of you that are guests with us, maybe this is your first time or you're relatively new here, we, we're grateful, number one, that out of all of the things that you chose to do, you chose to come into a new building with new faces, and we want to welcome you. We have had a number of new families that have been attending recently, and our goal is that not only would you feel the presence of the Lord, but that you would feel the friendship of the people around you, and uh, that you would feel at home here. If you're looking for a home church, we would love to welcome you into the family of God here, uh, and we're grateful that you're here. My name is Doug DeMint. I have the privilege of being the lead pastor here, and if you have your Bibles this morning, I'm going to ask that you would turn back to the same chapter that we read last week. I have been in a series for the past several weeks on natural authority and spiritual power. Last week I got into the, the topic of Daniel and Babylon and we recognized that we were not going to be able to finish it and rather than just trying to rush through the last point, I thought let me just take some time and end it there and then I'll come back and I'll finish the message this week and so thank you for your presence. How many of you were here last week? A lot of you. There's a lot of you that were not. So what you need to know is that all of our messages are on our website, and I would encourage you to go back so that I'm going to highlight briefly some of the things that I spoke about last week and then get to the last part. But if you would like a more full explanation of that, you can go to our website. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn to Daniel chapter 1? If you have your electronic devices, you can look on those. And if you don't have anything to read, then we're going to put it up on the screen for you. But I'm going to read the whole chapter of the first chapter of Daniel so that we can grab the context of this. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of the court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter into the king's service. Among those were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, so he asked the chief official for permission to not defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food 
and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and the enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Father, would you take your word now, and as we begin to unpack it, not only of the historical context in which it was written, but the application in which we live, may you lead us by your spirit and anoint our hearts not only to be hearers of the word, but that we would have the courage to be doers. And we pray this in Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. In this series that we've been dealing with, we've been talking about how do we live in a culture in which it is so far outside the comfort zone of Christians. We live in a culture that does not believe what we believe. We live in a culture and an age in which it is difficult for us to be faithful to the Lord without looking and being called silly. Not only that, how do we, as children of God, begin not only to live spiritually, but begin to thrive spiritually in circumstances that are not of our choosing and in an atmosphere that is not conducive to spiritual growth. I believe that as we apply some of the things that we have heard from the word of the Lord today, that he is going to help us make some application to that. I believe that we recognize, first of all, in verse 2 it talks about the Lord delivered Jehoiakim king of Judah into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. It also tells us in verse 9 that God caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. In verse 17, it says that God gave these four young men knowledge and understanding, which leads us to the place to understand that sometimes God leads us in ways that don't seem right to us. There was an apparent disaster that had taken place, which was the first point we talked about last week. The people of God, the nation of God, had already developed in their mindset a theological construct that if God was in it, they were God's people, everything was always going to turn out well for them. That there would always be prosperity. That there would always be peace. That they would never be overcome. They had an idea of what victory looked like in their mind. And the scripture tells us that all of that came crashing down when the Babylonians besiege Jerusalem and they see their king being taken away, not only that, but the scripture tells us that the cream of the crop, the brightest, most handsome people of the young people and the children were taken away into exile. 
And up to this point, they had thought that should never happen with the way that we know God. And so this caused a dramatic conversion in their kind of thinking, and it remains true to us today. If we as God's people believe that we have a theological construct that once we live for God, that nothing bad will ever happen to us, that there will never be circumstances that God might direct that would lead us into places of loss and heartache and illness and sickness of some sort, that we have developed a, a thought process that only allows us to look at God one way. What do we do then in the real world when those things come to pass? They thought Jerusalem would always stand free. And then one morning they woke up and their moment and their idea of God was shattered before them under the sound of an occupying army and soldiers that were literally dragging their children away into captivity. How were they to respond to this apparent disaster? How would they begin to explain it when their thoughts of God was that he would always bless them in the way that they thought he should? And then how would they ever come through it? And we ask ourselves the same question. Lord, how do we live in this world today? How do we live in the nation that we live? How do persecuted Christians around the world live in a way that doesn't seem as if it fits that you receive all of the glory all of the time? And that led us to understand that they were in an obvious dilemma. The writer gives us a picture of what was happening to the whole nation, but then focuses on four young men and one, men, one young man in particular. And the dilemma was this. What do you do when you believe something with all your heart and you live in a context where the people around you do not believe a single thing that you believe? This was the exact circumstance that was confronting these people. And some of them, as we discussed last week, said, well... Yesterday we lived in Zion. Today we live in Babylon. When we were in Zion, we lived like the Zion people. Now that we're in Babylon, let's just blend in and do as the Babylonians do. And instantly, they were absorbed into the culture. You say, well, how do you know that? Because you'll notice that there were only four men that were exiled that decided to have the convictions of not eating the king's food. The other exiles did. Just blended right in with what was going on around them. And so they were absorbed, and instantly they lost their distinctives of their faith and who they were. And in the middle of all of that, some of God's people chose it's an easier life to just be absorbed than to try to fight this. The other side of that, as we discussed last week, were those that withdrew, said, listen, I will not be absorbed into society, but I am not going to give an inch in this. They are going to know that I'm not like them. We are good people. They are bad people. I'll stand in their face and I'll fight and I'll march no matter what they do. Anything they do nice to us is just a dirty trick to try to suck us in. And they were so concerned about being absorbed that they wouldn't even engage in the community they live. And they completely withdrew. And then we gazed for just a few moments at the fact that Daniel represented a third group in this. And we could title that cooperation without compromise. He was going to live in a culture in such a way that his life could make a radical impact on those around him even though he knew that it would be a hard road to live. This is the difficulty for the church today. How do we live in this culture 
Learning to say yes to some things and cooperate with some things and at the same time hold the convictions of our faith and believe that there are some things that we must say no to. How do we remain an inner stranger to life and culture to which we were outwardly involved in? So what is it that some things that they said yes to and some things they said no to? Interesting enough, Scripture said that Daniel and his friends said yes to having their names changed. Their names indicated the faith that they had come from. Don't know about you, but I'd have a hard time if somebody wanted to change my name, even though it may have a spiritual significance. And not only that, they allowed their names to be changed that indicated the God of the culture that they were living in. Yet, they felt this is something that we can cooperate with and not fight it. They also said yes to a new university. They were engaged and involved in the University of Babylon for three years in a totally separate setting, understanding things and languages and literature that they were not familiar with. Yet they said yes to that. And so that brings us to the fact that there are some things that you can say yes to, but they did not say yes to everything. Otherwise, they would have been absorbed. And that brings us to this morning as we start this final point, which brings us to an important decision. It's very clear from reading this that these individuals, while settled down into the context of Babylon, that they knew they were under scrutiny. How many of you as children of God recognize that your co-workers are watching you all the time? In fact, my wife tells funny stories having been a public school teacher when they found out that she didn't drink and they didn't curse. She had one teacher that said, my goal this year is to make you curse and to drink. Well, that was a bad thing to tell her. There's no way they were going to win after that. But it brought to her the understanding that we are being observed. There's nothing that the world likes more than to see people of conviction fall and fail in those things so that they can come back and say, see, you're just like us. And it would have been easy for Daniel, Daniel and, the, and the young men that was with him to, to understand we are being watched. But it was more than just that. They knew that they weren't just under the scrutiny of people. More than that, they knew that they were under the scrutiny of God. That God saw them all the time. In fact, it tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.11, Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. In other words, more than anything else in my life, I know that my God sees everything I do. I know that my God is watching me. I can't sing the songs that his presence is with me all the time and then live in such a way that I can uh, throw away the convictions that he has given me. I'm living under the scrutiny of God, first of all. And I have to understand that. Proverbs 22, 6 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In other words, we live in a day and age where we no longer fear. That word fear is reverence God very often. And he's reminding us that the reverence of the Lord, understanding he sees us in every situation, is the beginning of living a life of wisdom. And it is as we live under the all-seeing eyes of God that we make wise choices. We learn to say yes when we can say yes, and we learn to say no when we should say no. Since this passage is about young men, let's just think about young men for a moment. Let's think about the young men in our church. Let's think about the young men in our homes. Mom and dad, what are your young men learning to say no to? And what are your young men learning to say yes to? 
And if they're learning to say no to some things, why are they learning to say no? Is it simply as a result of the constraints that you have put around them, which must inevitably be the case when you're dealing with young people in their formative years? Or, as the young men in our homes are growing up, are they learning to say no because of conviction that is within their heart that they know right from wrong and must please the Lord? Think about this. What if the Daniel experience suddenly became our experience? Last week, everything in your life is going along and it's just fine. You're living your normal life, living the way you normally do, going to the places that you normally go to. But tomorrow morning, you wake up to the sound of foreign troops marching up and down our streets, busting in our doors. And as they burst into our homes, they are grabbing our children and our teenagers and they are dragging them out of our homes into the streets and drag them away into exile. And they take our sons into captivity. They take them to a land that is different. They put them in a culture that is alien. They put them into schools that teach a thought process that is totally different than any of the ways that you have raised them. They intentionally expose them to things in which they have never been exposed before. Question, mom and dad, how much confidence do you have, dad, that your 14-year-old son, if he were taken from you and put into a completely alien environment, would even know what he believes? let alone have the conviction to stand in an alien culture and say, these are things that I will and I will not do. How much confidence do you have, mom and dad, that your child and your grandchild, if they were removed from you today and taken into a world that is totally different, would have enough within them to stand for the cause of Christ? If you are like me, you are answering... Not a lot. Don't have a lot of culture or don't have a lot of confidence in the culture today. And suddenly as moms and dads, you're scrambling and you're thinking and you're going, well, boy, I'm, I'm really counting on that children's church at Grace Assembly. I'm really counting on Pastor Julie that she's got to begin to invest something in those kids' lives that are going to help them stand. Or, or you're, if you have teenagers, you're going to go, Pastor Pablo, Pastor Rachel, we're counting on you. You've, you've, you've got to invest something in these teenagers' lives that if that were to be the case, they would have conviction of heart and begin to stand up for that. And we often forget the responsibility of developing convictions is on you, mom and dad. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 1, these are the commands, decrees, and the laws that directed me to teach you what to observe. And in verse 2 it says, so that you your children and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all of his decrees and commands. Verse 7, impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down at night with them. Talk about them when you get up in the morning. 
And in the absence of being faithful to Deuteronomy chapter 6, we will always live in fear of the reality of Daniel chapter 1. And the fact of the matter is Daniel chapter 1 happens every day in our culture. Every single day. When our children get on the bus, they go into those environments. Every time they connect to the Internet, they are connecting to an alien world. How will they know what to say yes to? And how will they know what to say no to? No youth group, no matter how great it is, no children's church will do it. It will be done within the framework of your home. And all that the church can do will be to supplement, but it will never be able to replace what you teach in your home. So mom and dad, learn the lessons because there's coming a day when they're going to jump in a car. There's coming a day when you're going to put them on a bus. There's coming a day when they're going to get on an airplane. How much confidence do you have as a result of what has been done in their lives during the formative years that you will send out a Daniel rather than sending out spiritual disasters? Daniel was a young man of resolve. He wasn't old at this point. He's, he's a teenager. And you will notice that even as a teenager, he makes a decision that is based upon resolution. Daniel was a young man who had learned and determined to regulate his behavior based upon his principles. And he realized that the kind of crucial decisions that he was going to be asked to make those that he was going to be called upon to make could not be left to a last-minute moral decision. Let me tell you something. We need to be talking to our children about the kind of decisions that they need to make so that when they are confronted with them, they will have already decided what to do by the time they get there. Because if you wait and they are suddenly confronted with something that they are unprepared for, and they do not know what they believe or how they will behave, in that moment they will not be smart enough, strong enough, spiritual enough, or principled enough to make it up as they go along. These things must be pre-thought and must be predetermined. Therefore, Daniel was a man of resolution, and it was his internal resolution that made him the kind of man he was to make decisions when those moments came. And I find it interesting that Daniel is the one that chose to raise the issue in his own time and his own way and in his own place to declare what he believed and to indicate how he was going to do it. As this series has been about what do we do when natural authority comes in contact with spiritual power or in this instance when natural authority comes in conflict with spiritual convictions. Daniel was able to speak with confidence as it related to his life and to his faith and to his values and his convictions because he had been raised in such a way that those were steadfast and had been solidified. Now, here's what you need to know about this passage. Daniel's a teenager, man. He's not a prophet. He wasn't a pastor. He wasn't a pastor's kid. He wasn't the son of a religious leader, and neither were any of the other three. They were four regular guys, 
plucked out of a church, plucked out of a community. And it was on the shoulders of these four men that God and the history of God's people was resting on the decisions that they would make. Listen to me, church. Ultimately, the future of the church in America does not depend upon its clergy. The future of the church of America depends upon you people becoming men and women of resolution and decision, saying if these are the convictions of my life and I don't care who's watching me at work or who's watching me at school, there are some things that I can say yes to. There are other things I will not participate in and I must say no because of the convictions of my life. That's why the task of the clergy of America is to teach the Bible or the clergy of the world so that you can form convictions and then go out into a foreign and alien world and live those convictions. I have to think that Daniel in this instance began to think back to some of the conversations that he had had with his mom and dad when he was a boy or when he was a young teenager. It may sound a lot like some of the conversations that you who are parents of children and young teenagers may have. Mom and dad, you're so old-fashioned. Nobody else lives like us. Do we have to keep doing all these traditions again and again and again? It's so weird, mom and dad. You're so strange. Do we have to go to the temple again? Do we have to talk about this stuff again? I mean, when I go to bed, we talk about it. When I wake up, we got to. In the chariot rides, we talk about it. We talk about it all the time. Can't we choose to talk about something like sports just once, dad? I don't want to go to youth group. I don't think they like me there. Do I have to do it again? But on this day, when having been ripped out of his society and placed into another one, something begins to click in his mind. Those things which he had been taught and placed within his life begin to grow in some new ways. And mom and dad, you're going to have to be the bad guy and wait for the day when some of this stuff starts to click in your children. As a young teenager, I felt that I had attained the maturity to make decisions on my own. I knew how to pour milk without spilling it and eat cereal. I informed my father and my mother that I would let them know how I felt, that it was no longer important for me to constantly attend church every time they went, and that I expected them to respect my decision. That was not a smart move on my part. I was informed without question that as long as I lived under their roof, ate their food, was under their protection, and I believe my mother's words were, as long as you breathe my air, <laughs> that I would not have a choice in the matter and that I would be attending church with the family every time the doors were open. Amen. Now, there are parents today, 21st century, well smart parents today that are thinking, Making your kids go to church is a horrible way to parent. That's coercion. Well, that's indoctrination. You're right, it's indoctrination. You're right, it's coercion. What do you want them to be indoctrinated with? What do you want them to turn out like? Garbage and filth and ideas that have no basis on the Bible? That is what is wrong with families today as we are letting children parent themselves. 
and make decisions about themselves that they are not mentally prepared to even approach. Parents, we need to be parents. It wasn't until I was older. The first Sunday that I was out of their house and on my own and in college that the alarm clock went off on a Sunday morning and I thought, there's nobody to tell me to get up today. Ha! <laughs> and I didn't go to church. And by Monday afternoon, I had felt so guilty and thought it's thrown my life out of kilter that that's the only time I ever missed because what I was taught became tradition. Tradition became values. Values became conviction. In fact, it was what my parents constraining me when I was young ended up playing an enormous role in helping me develop the convictions in my young life that would determine the kind of man that I would become. It was those convictions that determined the kind of education that I would pursue, the topics that I would study, the girl that I would marry, and the life that we would live. And it all had to do with my parents making decisions for me at an age when I was not smart enough to make them on my own. And they refused to let me parent myself because they knew that if they would just do the right thing, even when it was difficult, it would give me a future that was yet to come. Train up a child in the way that they should go. That is our problem. And those moments when your children are in the presence of the Lord, whether it be in children's church or youth group or in this room or at conventions and retreats, it's in those moments that God deposits something into them that will give them the ability to stand when they stand in the middle of an alien culture. Daniel was a young man of resolution and he made a decision. Now we look at the scripture and you're going, he made a decision about a strange topic. Food? Glorious food? I'm sorry, I almost broke into song there as I'm thinking about Thanksgiving coming up this week. Daniel 1.8 says, And Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. Our first thought is, goodness, Daniel, if you're going to take a stand on something, why would you take a stand on something that seems as silly as food? Food is not important. Food was very important. Daniel recognized that the great danger that faced the people of God in his day was the danger of being absorbed into culture, of drifting into total conformity, of letting go of the traditions and the patterns of his people, of being absorbed into a surrounding culture. He knew that the future of his nation depended upon them remaining separate and that his people were not going to be contextualized by the surrounding cultures. Daniel knew that God had established food laws which even though people around them thought were really stupid but which he knew were really important because of this. They were external symbols of an internal conviction. External symbols of an internal conviction. It wasn't simply that he didn't want to eat the food. It was that in his heart, not eating the food was an indication that he was something different and was someone different because of the God that he served. How many of you have ever seen Fiddler on the Roof? There's that song in there that goes, tradition, bum, 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 bum. This was exactly what he was going through. The traditions of his life had built into him some convictions. And he knew that if he stopped, he said, I would begin to lose what makes me different in the eyes of God. And I know that God is watching me. And when Daniel looked at the tradition of not eating the food, he said, it teaches me who I am, Daniel, and it teaches me what God expects of me. 
He expects me not to be absorbed and not to be a bad guy, but to exercise cooperation without compromise. And I cannot compromise on the issue of food. I cannot do it. And so Daniel, as a young teenager, takes the initiative and chooses the topic as an outward sign to those that were overseeing him and to his friends that they were different, that they were going to be separated. And Daniel made it a matter of conscience. In fact, one of the commentators named Wallace said this, Daniel believed that faithfulness, even in observing outward regulations, mattered. For what was truly and uniquely inward was suddenly dependent upon the outward. Now, I want you just to think about this for a minute because that is totally reversed to what we hear today. How many times do we say, the way that I act really doesn't matter because God knows my heart. We say, the only thing that really matters is what I've got going on on the inside. And the way that I act on the outside does not matter at all. That's totally foreign to the way that Daniel approached things. He said, listen, what happens on the outside does matter because it's a reflection of what's going on on the inside. External routine can become matters of conviction, not simply by routine, but because of what God can do in your life through those things. And I could spend a lot of time applying this, but I will not because I am convinced that the Holy Spirit is helping you apply those things in your own life. So Daniel determined, I will not defile myself with royal food. Why? Because the food was dirty? No, I don't believe that at all. He simply believed that faith in God and the forgiveness of God had made him clean and he was called to a different life. And these food laws and other customs were the outward things that would keep him separate. They were a sign and a symbol of his inner cleansing. And he recognized if I give up those signs of separation, I will lose my ability to impact this culture for good. Therefore, all of the people who thought he was really, really being silly... He determined in the middle of that that he would not quit. My favorite chicken sandwich is served by Chick-fil-A. Love it. One of the things that I love about that company is that they, in their leadership, based some convictions on the Word of God. And they said, we will not open on the Lord's Day. Not that Sunday wasn't a profitable day because they are told it could have been the most profitable day. How many times have you driven up on a Sunday forgetting that it's closed? You're going, oh, well, I'm glad for them. <laughs> we look at this and we recognize that in our culture today, there have been a number of people that have no faith whatsoever that will fight against them because of the standards that they have, and yet I applaud them for the external values that are demonstrated showing something that's taken place on the inside. Oh, that the Christian church would have the same kind of conviction and be willing to be thought foolish because of our external distinctives. I gave this some thought this week. What are the external distinctives of the 21st century church? They are reduced to this. A one hour and 15 minute experience on a Sunday morning, whether in person or those of you that are sitting in your pajamas at home watching it on live stream, to which vast crowds say that they pay attention, that when they leave the doors of the church seem virtually unrelated to any other dimension of their life. How easy it is for us to be absorbed because we have no distinctives. But not for Daniel. 
The decisions that we have to make today are different than the decisions that Daniel had to make. But the important factor is this. We have got to learn to draw the line somewhere. At some point in our life, at some point in our walk, we have to say, I will not do that because I have an all-seeing God who's watching everything I do, and he alone is who I answer to. And the decision that Daniel made at this point in his life was foundational to everything that would happen to him later on. Listen to me. There would be no Daniel in the lion's den if there was not a Daniel saying, I will not participate in the king's food. There would be no Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego going into the fiery furnace if it had not been for those three guys saying, I will not take the royal food of the king. It was the decisions that they made to develop these convictions at an early age that allowed them, when things even got more difficult, to say, I've already made the decision. I will honor God in every possible way because I'm different than those that do not know my God. And the church today needs to be able to come to those same decisions and the distinctives that we establish today in our lives and in our families and in our culture will determine the opportunities that you have and the availability that you will have as God moves forward into the future. Worship team, if you'd please come. Daniel 1 concludes with this amazing display of God's power in the lives of these four individuals. He and his th three friends at the end of their little Weight Watchers time there stood before the king and were healthier than anybody else that they had had. It tells us in verses 17 to 20, to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding. We don't know what God would have given them or if he'd have been able to give it to them had they not had conviction. But he gave knowledge and understanding of all kind of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kind. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all. How do, how do you determine what's ten times better? I'm sorry, I'm, I'm just thinking out loud. How does that look? Better than the magicians and the enchanters of his whole kingdom. The issue is this. God is no man's debtor. Anytime that we, out of a commitment to principle, are prepared to exercise self-discipline in obedience to God, He will honor His word, He will honor His name, and He will honor His people. If we will stand up and say, I am learning what to say yes to, and I am learning what to say no to, so that God can be at work within me.